Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and an advocate for nearly two decades. Autism spectrum disorders impacts children from every socioeconomic background, every race, every religion, and every geographic space within our world. Children with autism learn differently, but each of them has that right to learn, has that right to treatment, and has the right to be able to find that right treatment team that recognizes their culture. This week, we're looking at all those cultural differences in the treatment of autism. We're excited to be joined by Molly Olapini, the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. Molly should be able to provide a lot of insight as the mission of the Global Autism Project is to promote acceptance and integration of individuals in the spectrum across the world. Molly, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So the work of the Global Autism Project has shifted a bit in the year of 2020, um, but initially the organization was founded to provide support and training to autism centers worldwide. Um, That included centers that were started by professionals, by parents, and what the work looks like a bit more this year is taking some of our leadership training and bringing that to autism centers, both in the U.S. and around the world. So I'd imagine, I mean, just your experience of seeing autism worldwide, that you have such a perspective, not only from the patient side of things, but also from the provider side. And and I guess the easiest way to get us started would say is, as you've traveled, as you've met with different people, as you've seen the cultural differences, Hmm. we know that autism is unique, but what are some of those unifying experiences where you've gone from country to country and met with a variety of people that, you know, this is an autism experience that is not unique. This is pretty common, no matter where I'm at. Yeah, you know, it's funny because one of the most frequently asked questions that I get is, what does autism look like around the world? And I always feel a little bit like perhaps you're disappointed to hear that it kind of looks the same, that parents (laughs) want the same for their kids around the world, that autistic individuals want the same things around the world, that as it turns out, there are humans all over the world. The discrepancies and the differences that we see are when we talk about how autism is understood around the world. And that is, of course, autism is a spectrum, and the level of understanding and acceptance of autism is a spectrum as well. So in some places in the world, the locally accepted belief is that autism is caused by bad spirits or demonic possession. In some places in the world, it's believed that it's caused by bad parenting. In some places in the world, it's believed that it's caused by vaccines. So this different spectrum of what causes autism can impact how it's addressed globally. But in terms of what people want and you know to live lives happy and independent, parents wanting the same for their kids, those are all pretty similar no matter where in the world you are. So when you go into an environment, and, and let's start on, on that macro level, you're going into the global environment. Yeah. And you have some of the families that see autism and what's causing autism to be very far away from maybe the science that that you and I might 
see as far sure. as the cause for autism. Sure. How, how does one go about entering into the dialogue, not necessarily to convince them otherwise, but to help them to engage in treatment or to help them yeah. to start seeking resources? How do you take that extreme? How do you work through it? Do you have an example that you could work off of? Yeah, so we don't ever make them wrong. You know, no matter what a parent tells me is causing autism, I meet them where they are, I hear them, I sometimes ask them how they know. You know, I started the organization living in Ghana and West Africa in 2003, and I would explain the work that we're doing, and people would commonly say to me, oh, I bet they had a really big wedding. And I, for a while, didn't really understand what that was about. And I later learned that if you have a large wedding, you likely invited people who don't like you very much. And it's quite possible that one of those people put a curse on your child. And so rather than engage in a conversation about the curse and about the wedding and all of that, we then just ask questions that kind of bring the humanity back to the situation and ask, you know, what does this child enjoy to do, enjoy doing? What does this child enjoy doing? How do you know when they're hungry? What kinds of things, you know, do they have any favorite activities? Things like that. And so, you know, I think step one is we just, we just don't make them wrong. We just don't. Um, you know, I mean, as you know, we have in 20 years ago, I think you and I have been doing this for about the same period of time. 20 years ago, we really didn't know. You know, and we kind of like the most important thing that we taught in autism is there is no known cause and no known cure, if you will. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the language has shifted and adapted quite a bit since then. Um, but given that, it was like, okay, maybe that, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I, we have as much evidence for that as for some of the things people believe in the US. So it was really more about engaging with them around what they wanted for their child, something their child would want. And then I remember um, when I was first working in Ghana, and literally a week later, a child spontaneously. Um, asked for something verbally. He, he literally said, I want bread within a week of working. Now, this was not because I was this incredible, incredibly skilled instructor. I maybe had a strongish skill. So I've been doing about a year at this point. So it really wasn't because of that. It's just <laughs> that kids are ready to learn. And he'd been so frustrated. And months later, his mom said, you know, I really have a hard time believing that, that he's possessed because he's starting to say these things. And so when people see things for themselves, that's so much more powerful. One of the things that we talk about working internationally is that people believe things when it comes out of their own mouths. Yeah. And so to me, that removes any desire to tell you anything about anyone. No, and I think, that, I think that's such an important component to pick out of working overseas, working in different cultures, is that if you're not listening, and you're not able to understand, which I would imagine is the first piece before you even treat, yeah. you really have yes. to understand the perspective. So in the, in the training process, and I, and I guess this would be a question that I'd look at both from the parent perspective, but also the clinician perspective, mm -hmm. um, being able to train around understanding cultural differences and communication and um, being able to actually enter into therapeutic relationships is yeah. not something that all autism clinicians have been trained to do is that they yeah, need to do a science. <laughs> um, how does a family advocate for that? And how, how does a clinician continue to build those skill sets when they're not necessarily always taught 
And the family has to play a role in advocating their own culture because you can't presume these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, from the clinician side, which is generally where we look at it, there are a few things that we look at, right? We sort of have this three circle Venn diagram and it's their priorities, meaning the family, the kid, the community we're working in, our priorities, meaning from our perspective, this is what we saw, and then sustainability. And it is only an, it is only where those three interact that we go to work, right? Because it doesn't really matter if it's my priority and my priority alone. If the family doesn't prioritize it, then it doesn't, it's not going to make a difference. And if it's not going to be sustainable for whatever reason, then there's really no sense in wasting the kid's time, you mm-hmm. know? So, you know, I think from the family side, just really asking questions and, and really clearly stating, you know, like this is a cultural thing for us and this is a priority. This is really a priority. And when a clinician recommends something that you know you're not going to do, though it may not be easy to hear, speak up and share that. You know, that's not, that's not something we're going to do in our family. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to teach our kid to eat with a knife and fork because that's not how we eat food in our, in our household. Okay. Got it. That makes a real difference. And then the other piece I think is that we also have a tool where we say, we look at something that we're going to teach and we look at it through this filter of what is essential, what is preferable and what is preferable to me as a clinician. And what we often find is that the vast majority of clinicians are so set in that preferable to me square Mm -hmm. that they're not, they're just not even looking at what's essential. They're just, they're just letting it there. Whatever's essential in that relationship is out the window. And it's like, also, I think creating some clarity around what is essential. It's not essential that the kid eats with a knife and fork. It's essential that this family trusts you and you have a relationship with them. So getting really clear about that on both sides. And I think, you know, um, you can, you can ask clinicians and they would much rather be told, even though they don't want to hear it in the moment, they would much rather be told we're not going to ever do that in our family rather than problem solve around that knife and fork for a family that's not going to eat their food with a knife and fork ever. And the kid has no examples of anyone eating with a knife and fork in that family. Maybe they're eating with chopsticks. <laughs> Ready to teach that, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. And I mean, I think the way that you've set it up where you're looking at those essential components yeah. probably allows for trust to be built. Absolutely. So if there are some of those areas that are preferential to the clinician, that yeah. might be also preferential to, or not preferential, but required skills mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the family and the child, is that yeah. you can bridge that gap easier if trust yes. has been established. Absolutely. Uh, what, what are some of... So when I, I, I look at a clinical experience that I've had where um, maybe a family might be more driven by academic achievement, success, mm-hmm. and their child's real clinical deficit as it mm-hmm. pertains to autism is social engagement, socialization. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would be to me a situation where, you know, you have to build the trust. How do you yeah. make those two things align where academic success and social opportunity be seen on an even playing field. What are some examples that you have of just within within the cultures that that we live amongst in the US right now, which there are so many. There are so many. Yeah. Where you've run into those those sort of those issues. Yeah. So I think starting meeting people where they are is a really important piece and not making people wrong. So just as I'm not going to make someone wrong if they tell me 
the cause of autism and there's no science that I've ever read that supports it. I'm also not going to make them wrong for wanting to work on academic skills. What I might do is bring to their attention some of the other things that are required to be successful academically, right? So you need reciprocal engagement. You need these sort of things in order to learn these academic skills. One of the ways that we explain autism um, in its in its simplest, you know, we're kind of driving in a taxi in another country. What is autism? Autism is another way. It's a different way of learning. And so it requires a different style of teaching. And that simple explanation tends to kind of get at whatever it is that people are confused by about autism, right? So it's, as you said, if the, if the focus for the family is on academic skills and really the deficits are around social engagement, we focus on this is the way in which, in which their brain learns. And so we can use this way to teach these initial skills so that they'll be ready to learn those academic skills. So again, not making them wrong, right? I mean, I talk with clinicians all the time and they're completely frustrated with a family for not implementing X, Y, and Z when they've completely overlooked that they're just never, they're not working in the essential space at all. They're so focused on preferable to me. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, so there, there are so many vast cultural differences and the communication part that you've spoken about, I think is really important. Um, access to care though, is another issue that of course yeah. we're going to run into is yeah. uh, Forbes had put in a, a, a pretty nice article back in June about that uh, discrepancy of access to care. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing I'd be looking at is how do you still work on establishing that trust and that, the, that cultural understanding if you don't have access to a clinician who can communicate yeah. in the language of preference or, I mean, is there a possibility to do that? How does that work? Or is it a, you know, there's the top tier. Yes. Somebody can speak the language and understand the culture versus there's still ways to do it where you can get good care. What are your thoughts on that? So I think one of the things that we're looking at, and it's interesting because we get asked a lot of the time, you know, how do you teach in cultures where you don't speak the language? Because I can't find an entire team of people willing to travel with our organization who all speak Hindi, right? It's just Mm -hmm. not, it's just not possible. What we know is that from a training perspective, from the perspective of training people in other countries is that good teaching transcends language. It really does. I mean, I can still to this day tell you the check word for blueberry (laughs) because the teaching was so on point when I watched the teacher teaching. In terms of families who don't have access to therapists who speak their language, that, you know, that's a really, that's absolutely a challenge. And it's a challenge all over the world, of course. And one of the things that we have found to be really important and really helpful is even if the family doesn't have a relationship with a therapist who speaks the language, perhaps they can form a relationship with someone else in the community who understands something. For instance, there's large um, populations in the U.S. of people who've immigrated to the U.S., right? And there may be one or two people within that community who speak 
the local language from where they come, as well as English. And so as the more we can kind of build up those networks so that they can support each other is, is really important. Um, you know, and really, honestly, on Facebook, there is a ton, a ton, a ton of groups and parent groups and other languages. And, um, you know, I think even if you don't, if you're not able to to communicate with the clinician in the same language, at the very least, you can communicate with another family having that experience. Because there's a few aspects to parenting a child with autism, right? And one is, of course, the clinical aspect. The other is the social aspect. The other is the isolation that a family can feel if they do not speak the same language and their culture does not understand or accept autism. You can just kind of see how that is compounded. So I think if you are a family who speaks another language um, as, and English, perhaps you can use yourself as a resource to those families who are looking for, for additional understanding and support. There is so much to, to be said and to be done within the parent communities of these groups. It's really, it, it's, it's really astounding. I mean, autism is where it is today, getting, you know, covered by insurance and all of that because of the actions of parents. Mm -hmm. Make no mistake, yeah. <laughs> you know, clinicians are going to do what clinicians do. It, it's been parents of kids all over the country and all over the world who've advocated for these kids. And yeah. so that can happen as well in smaller communities and also connecting back. There's a tremendous amount of stuff now happening internationally. And sometimes you don't realize it until you're in the U.S. on the Internet seeing what's happening back in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but that as well, really just connecting to the community, I think, is the biggest piece there. That's a, a, that statement kind of rings true across all of the subjects that we've talked about and all yeah. of our podcasts is that yeah. there's unity out there. It's typically grassroots driven. Very. Yeah. It's something where you need to be able to reach out and find those other people in the community that understand what mm. you're going through and bring them on to your treatment team somehow. Because yeah. um, if, if I heard you correctly, it's language alone wouldn't necessarily make it a great clinical experience. You need no, language no. plus that cultural competency and that understanding, yes. which are all clinical skills to create it. And if you're missing one piece, well, there are ways to be able to find that yeah. on the language end and, and bring that into your treatment team. Um, Absolutely. I think one of those, one of those big barriers that, that people often think of is that language thing, but it, it sounds like there's solutions and the solution might be reaching out Facebook pages. It might be trying to find a family member or yeah. bringing in a neighbor in who could help to um, communicate some of those needs that you want really expressed into your treatment plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a way it's, it's almost this, it's, it's sort of this very easy, convenient thing to say, well, we couldn't find anyone who spoke the language. So never mind. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, it's actually not, it, it is, it is great if that can, if that's possible. And also we know we, we don't even have enough clinicians, let alone enough clinicians who speak enough languages for, mm -hmm. for everybody to match perfectly. Right. And so to not let that be a barrier. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, if you were to prioritize how you're looking at the training that you do for all of those people going through the Global Autism Project and your leadership training, mm -hmm. and you're trying to really empower them to be able to engage, bring the family into treatment. I mean, yeah. what are those, what are those big 
uh, key points that really drive home the message that, that this is the most important thing for those trainees to walk away with? Yeah, well, I think some of the things we've talked about, right, that people believe things when it comes out of their own mouth. Um, I think bringing people is one of the really powerful lessons that we do with clinicians is bring awareness to their blind spots when it comes Mm -hmm. to the training, when it comes to the work, right? And what I mean by that is we know what we know. We know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's like three quarters of the pie of knowledge. (laughs) Um, So really bringing people's awareness to that, definitely, definitely that essential preferable, preferable to me. If there is one thing you take away from working with the Global Autism Project ever, it is that you get clarity and you get clear around what it is that is essential in that relationship. And, you know, again, people believe things that come out of their own mouths. So that to me removes any desire um, to kind of therapize them (laughs) as I've heard people that is not a word, um, but it's a commonly used not word or, you know, just to, just to tell people how things need to be. Um, And I think, you know, the other piece is just really getting, just really getting that your work is only as effective as it is when you're gone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, really matter what it is that your child can do that that your client it doesn't really matter what it is your client can do while you're there in the room Mm -hmm. if the second you leave they can't you know yeah um yeah the 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 importance to take all those skills and turn them into something that are usable absolutely from i think that that's something that it should ring true in all of treatment yeah. But I think that it, it's, it's even more important when you have any sort of um, treatment that you really have to dive deep to really understand the perspective of the patient. Yeah. Um, because you could be empowering them with all the wrong skill sets for their environment, which yeah. does no good. Our biggest takeaway um, is that we do with and not for. Mm-hmm. And I did a TEDx talk a few years ago on this. And the most, most common people who write to me after they've seen the talk are parents of kids with autism. Mm. And they realize that they've been taking a back seat and they've let that clinician come in and do for them. And the clinician's been all too happy to do for them. Yeah. And when we do with and not for, we create something that's really sustainable. And especially as your client gets older and they're able to voice their own opinions, you know, nine-year-old has some valid, <laughs> has some val- six-year-old has some valid opinions, you know, mm-hmm. um, and kind of that same thing, that doing with and not for. So how do you change that dynamic where you have a variety of people who will then enter into that doctor or clinician relationship with uh, mm-hmm. so a family that feels like the clinician should be telling them? Rather mm-hmm. than being an equal part of the decision making, yeah. being able to voice their opinion, how do you make that a transparent process so the family has the voice and that they know that they have power in the relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. So, one of the very first things that I'll say to parents, no matter where in the world I am, is that you're that you've known him longer than I have. Mm-hmm. You've known your son longer than I have. Um, and so that's, that's sort of inarguable, right? <laughs> I met the kid five minutes ago. You've known this kid for four years. So, um, just starting with that and then really asking questions, questions that, that parents want to answer, you know, what are you, what are you hoping we get out of this? What mm-hmm. are you, um, 
you know, what are some of the things you want to be able to enjoy with your child? What are some of the things that your child, as we were saying earlier, right? What are some of the things your child enjoys doing? How do you know when your kid's hungry? You know, and even if they don't know the answer, that's okay. That's all right. You know, and then we flip over to another question that might be a little bit easier to answer. (laughs) Um, But, you know, really just asking them questions and reminding them again, that they have known that child longer than, longer than you have. And so while you might have done this for 20 years and seen tons of kids, this is your first day, your first moment, your first hour with this child. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny to me is that all of the work that you probably did internationally, where maybe this is a, a larger impact visually is that you see what's going on because yeah. it feels yeah. like a different world. Yeah. But the skills do mm-hmm. not change just because no. now you're doing it more locally. No. The variety of no. treatment doesn't change no. just because you're at home doing it, is that there's yeah. so many perspectives out there. Yeah. That is what our clinicians who traveled with our Skill Core program for nearly 10 years, we had hundreds of people travel with our organization. And the interesting thing is that when people are in another country, They're willing to accept that like, hey, I might not be the expert here and I might not know everything because I just got here. But here in the US, it feels so comfortable. People, you know, they look like you, they sound like you, your household looks the same. And so you go in kind of going like, oh, it's easy to be the expert here. Um, And so what we really work on is while while they are practicing being in another country where they're taking off their shoes and saying please before they say anything else or whatever those things are, bringing that same degree of respect and humility to the relationships that you have here in the U S even though what the world's telling you is that you're the expert on this, being able to say like, not, not on your child, (laughs) you know? And I think that the skills that you're empowering the, the clinicians with to be able to bring about that stronger relationship is key. So I know that with COVID is that the, the worldwide trips probably are on pause for the Global Autism Project. They're on pause, but yeah. How, how do BCBAs and how do leaders of our field still get that training that you're discussing? How do they still access all the skills that you're trying to be able to empower them with? Is, is, can you give us some more information on what the Global Autism Project is doing more within the U.S. right now? Yeah, we're actually really excited. You know, back in February, I had to make the executive decision to cancel our trips. And now that the whole world's been canceled, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But nothing had been canceled <laughs> on the first day of February 2020. Uh, so it was, a very, it was a very kind of intimidating decision. And what I knew is that in canceling those trips... I had waded deep into the water of uncertainty and unpredictability. I knew I was going to have a hundred people that essentially were ready to travel in three days. And I was going to tell them you can't travel in three days. And I have no idea when you can travel. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point we thought we may be able to run July trips. We may be able to run certainly October trips. We are recording this now in November of 2020. We did not run any of those trips. We now know. Um, but what, you know, what I told my team and the conversation we had is, okay, this is a blank slate. And what we know is outside of predictability is possibility. 
And we are well outside the realm of predictability when it comes to 2020. And so we actually were able to look at what is it that we can still offer. And we had a lot of great conversations with Skill Core members. We had some focus groups. And we learned that really what people came back for over and over again was, yes, the travel was fun, but they loved the leadership training that they were getting. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we were able to do in 2020 live in a big group was an incredible leadership academy that we ran for three days at a summer camp in Texas. It was so fun. (laughs) And so what we've actually done with the opportunity and the possibility of 2020 is we have taken that course and created it as an online six-week course that we're offering to companies now. And we have a company that's just completed it. They had 85 of their clinical staff go through it. They loved it. You know, we've gotten such incredible feedback from the CEOs. Like I see changes from how people interact with each other to how they're interacting with parents to to how they're approaching projects and new ideas and challenges and all of that to the, you know, to the BCBAs who are part of it. And it just, it was so incredible. And I I was talking with one of them today because we just wrapped that. And I said, look, this was the biggest experiment in my professional career <laughs> to take this three-day live training and turn into a six-week Zoom course. Um, but it went really, really well. So we'll be offering that in 2021 to companies and individuals who want to be a part of that. So, um, you know, you may not get to see the Taj Mahal <laughs> on the trip, but you still get just an incredible, incredible experience um, yeah, of leadership I- and training. So sounds like such an amazing opportunity. And the fact that you all pivoted to still offer that sort of opportunity. Yeah. I think that that's an amazing investment that you're creating into the field. I appreciate yeah, you hopping on you. and discussing everything with us today. And, and I yeah, hope that to. this opens up more dialogue going forward and really challenges all the clinicians and the families yes. to feel comfortable and confident to talk about these cultural issues to really yes. make their care better. Yeah, it's really, it always comes down to open communication. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And is there a place that we can get more info just as we're, as we're signing off here? I want to make sure everybody has all the resources available. Yeah, absolutely. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can also visit our website at globalautismproject.org. All right. That's my next stop. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's interesting that we had to go a world away to learn skills that impact us so much locally. By talking with Molly Olapenny today is that we learned that, you know, the ability to sit there and to listen, to understand what's really important to a family and then empower them to work on those goals and to help them to refocus a lot of the energies into those priorities is so important. And we can do that in an environment where we build the resources, we create the structures and empower our clinicians to really understand perspective and cultural understanding. Thank you again for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments, 
and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural, dot com. Thank you for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.